Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. Anxiety is, of course, very common, but it's also very commonly misunderstood. So today, we're going to do a show that you might think of as everything you wanted to know about anxiety but were afraid to ask. We've got an expert from Harvard who is going to answer your questions about all sorts of flavors of anxiety, which is an especially relevant topic during this time of pandemic and political upheaval. This, by the way, is the second episode in a four-part series we're doing called Taming Anxiety. By the way, if you missed the first episode with pop star, Broadway star, sitcom star Sarah Bareilles, I strongly recommend you go check that out. And the third part, by the way, and this is important to know, the third part's going to be posted on Friday. Friday, we normally post bonuses, but we're going to do a full, proper episode on social anxiety specifically coming up on Friday. So uh, stay tuned for that. Today, though, we are diving into the science of anxiety with Dr. Luana Marquez. Luana is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She's the president of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, which sounds like a really fun group. And she's the author of a book called Almost Anxious, Is My or My Loved One's Worry or Distress a Problem? You might recognize Luana actually from this show because she was our very first guest on the subject of COVID way back in March of 2020 in an entirely different lifetime in an episode we entitled How to Handle Coronavirus Anxiety. So today she's back because, let's face it, anxiety sucks. In fact, I actually wanted to call this whole series Anxiety Sucks, but uh, Taming Anxiety felt a little bit more mature and perhaps more on point because anxiety can, in fact, be tamed. And in this series, we're going to teach you how to do that. To that end, in this episode, Luana is going to explain from a scientific perspective what anxiety actually is, why it actually isn't a problem in and of itself. Instead, it's our relationship to it that is often a problem. She's going to talk about what the TEB cycle is and how to work with it. That's a term of art, the TEB cycle. She'll talk about the short-term benefits of avoiding things that cause us anxiety and the long-term consequences of that avoidance, which are quite pernicious. She'll talk about how to handle anxiety-induced phobias, including, in my case, a pronounced fear of elevators. Plus, we're going to take a bunch of voicemails that you, our listeners, have submitted. Okay, I also want to add this, because you can also learn how to actually practice everything we're talking about in this special series. You can learn how to kind of integrate it into your neurons by participating in our free Taming Anxiety Challenge, which will take place over in the 10% Happier app. And that challenge kicks off next Monday, June 21st. So you can listen to the podcasts and then do the challenge. As many of you know, I think we have an entire app, the 10% Happier app, that is dedicated to helping you practice all the ideas we talk about on this show. I think it's a great resource and it's free to try. And this challenge is a great opportunity to go check out what we do in the app because you can get a real feel for how we do what we do. It's a 10-day challenge. It will combine the clinical chops of our guest today, Dr. Luana Marquez, with the meditation expertise of a great teacher named Leslie Booker, who's actually going to be on the show this coming Monday. Every day you get a little video featuring yours truly and one of the aforementioned experts. Some of the videos actually feature both of them. And then that video rolls directly into a short guided audio meditation from Leslie Booker, who likes to go by the name just simply Booker. And you'll receive daily reminders to help you keep on track. And you can invite your friends to participate with you. And you can see how they're doing and uh, gloat if you're doing better than them. To join the challenge, just download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps or by visiting 10percent.com, all one word spelled out. If you already have the app, just open it up and follow the instructions to join. Okay, here we go now with episode two in our Anxiety Palooza with Dr. Luana Marquez. Dr. Luana Marquez, welcome back to the show. Nice to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Although, as we will reveal to listeners, it's not always fun hanging out with you when you're in your tougher mode, but I'll explain that coming up. So let's start just so we can kind of level set here. How do you define anxiety? 
So I think there are lots of definitions, but let's think about it an overestimation of threat and an underestimation of your ability to actually handle that threat. It's really related to what you're saying to yourself, right? Um, anxiety affects our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, but really it's our prediction that we can't handle what's going to be thrown at us. This is navigating the world fretfully, both in terms of the challenges we face and our resources. That's absolutely right. That we imagine that our resources are not going to be enough to handle whatever it is we're predicting is about to happen that will have a negative impact. What do we know about what anxiety does to the brain? Well, anxiety really often turns on our amygdala, the old lizard brain, and allows us to sort of start preparing for fight, flight, or freeze in extreme signs of anxiety. It also does something unique about our ability to think. It turns off our prefrontal cortex, or I should say it dims it. It's just not as much activity. So that's why often when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm anxious and I can't think straight. And that's absolutely right. Your brain is just not working its best when anxiety becomes too much. It's so interesting because, I mean, this is sometimes referred to as the amygdala hijack, that you get activated, the lizard brain gets going, the reptilian folds of the brain are activated, and the newer parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which does our planning and rational thinking, the ability to use that goes close to zero sometimes. It really does, because we don't have to think to run from a lion. In fact, the body shuts down a lot of the organs. So if you are really in a threat situation, often people are going to say, you know, I have a stomach ache or I have, you know, I'm sweating. That's your body just preparing you for dealing with what needs to be dealt with. It's just keeping you safe. And you don't really need to think. In fact, you don't. Anxiety is almost never thrown around as a positive thing. That word is never thrown around in a positive sense. But it is trying to serve us, right? It is trying to protect the organism. Absolutely. I actually think of anxiety as a positive thing. Maybe why I do what I do for a living is that for me, it signals that something internally is not going well. And for me is an ability to then pause and ask myself, what's going on here? How I'm feeling? And so I find it to be positive personally. What is negative about it, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that we relate to it unwisely. Instead of seeing it as a signal that, oh, we should wake up and deal with something, we get carried away. That's right. We often get carried away. We add our own narrative. Um, we predict the worst. And in that scenario, then anxiety starts to paralyze people. It makes you feel like you really can't handle it. So let's dive in now to some of the paralytic aspects of anxiety. You and I conducted an interview for the Anxiety Challenge. And you talked about something called cognitive distortions, which were, as soon as you described them, just sounded like something that occupies a huge chunk of my waking hours. And I just want to play a little clip of you describing cognitive distortions, and then we'll dive more deeply into it on the other side. So here it is. So often when we're anxious, we believe that thoughts are facts. But the reality is our thoughts at that point are really being filtered through the lens of anxiety. So this is a concept of cognitive distortions, when our brain misinterprets information and jump to conclusions or imagine that the worst case scenario is going to happen. I think most people <laughs> will hear that and think it sounds uh, very familiar. So what can be done in the face of cognitive distortion? How do we even know we're doing it? Because often we just believe it. We often believe it. In fact, most of us believe that thoughts are facts. So I think a couple of things we should think about. First is... Everybody has it. So if you're listening to us and you're thinking, well, yeah, I think that way, absolutely. So the first piece is everybody has cognitive distortions. The question is, are you taking them as facts? And so how do you know you're having them? Often people start to feel bad. You're telling a narrative to yourself, I can't do this. This is never going to be over. Life is too challenging. And then you start to feel pretty bad. You get more anxiety. Your heart might pound. You may want to avoid things. And so the emotional, either physical or in your heart kind of parts of your body is when you sort of go, what's going on here? And often I say to my patients, just ask yourself, what am I saying to myself right now? And do I have data here? Can we question? Can we become detectives? And that's how we do it, right? We don't take thoughts as facts, especially thoughts that are driven through emotion. It's something we talk about in the challenge is 
kind of entering the cognitive distortion courtroom where you're cross-examining some of these thoughts as they're happening. Exactly. You're asking yourself, you know, what data do I have here? Would a judge in a court of law actually believe this? And sometimes, though, our distortions are true. And in fact, may not even be distortions, right? They may be things that have happened that are upsetting. And in that case, not only asking about, do I have data about this? But also asking, is it helpful? If you say to yourself something that's pretty negative all the time, how is it impacting you? And so sometimes we really need to get to more balanced ways of seeing the world so that we don't get stuck on that black and white, all or nothing kind of view of the world. And think about this. If we need our thinking brain to get out of situations that are stressful, then stressing about them is certainly a way to just turn off your brain, right? So if it's not helpful, then we need to sort of re-examine, find a more balanced view so that we can actually use the thinking brain for something that can help us. But how to actually do this? I mean, this is a two-part question. How to actually... I often don't wake up to my cognitive distortions until years later. <laughs> so how do we wake up to these cognitive distortions? And then once we have woken up, I mean, beyond the cross-examining, which you've talked about, how can we bring the prefrontal cortex, the newer, more rational part of the brain, back online? So the first part to wake up is to really have curiosity of what's going on in your life, in your brain. To pause for a second, to literally go, wait a minute, what am I saying to myself? Not to judge, not to correct, but the first step is to even understand that you have a pause button. And I think most of us just go on automatic pilot and we don't pause to ask ourselves, wait a minute, what's going on here? And without that pause, we can't ever wonder about cognitive distortions, right? So you create that pause. And, and I usually tell my patients to link to something, even if it's like one time a day, your phone goes off and you go, what was I thinking about right now? By starting to just create moments of curiosity into your brain, creating that pause button. Then once you create that pause button, by just asking the question, what am I thinking? What is going on in my brain? You are actually activating your prefrontal cortex. If you want to do even better, write down your thoughts. When we start to write down, especially in a pen and paper kind of idea, you start to slow down. Right? That's why people talk about diarying sometimes, journaling being helpful because it's slowing down the brain. You can't actually write as fast as you can have cognitive distortions in your brain. It's just not possible. So the cross-examination, the asking yourself, what am I thinking right now? The journaling, all of these moves inherently engage the prefrontal cortex. So you are, by dint of doing them, bringing it back online. That's exactly right. You're really just getting your brain to work for you by turning it on. And the trick thing here, and we haven't talked about this, but I think it's important, is the relationship between the two parts of the brain. By forcing yourself to activate your prefrontal cortex, you are, by definition, forcing your amygdala and your limbic hijacks to start to go down a little bit. And so you're sort of, you know, they, they compete for energy in your brain. That's how I think about it. And so for you to get out of that amygdala hijack, you want to turn on your prefrontal cortex. I would imagine, and I'm biased here, that meditation is extremely helpful in this whole system because meditation is systematically engineering a collision between you and the voice in your head. So you're creating the habit and boosting the skill of self-awareness, which would allow you to catch yourself in these cognitive distortions. That's absolutely right. And science teaches us that meditation is extremely helpful, especially for anxiety. There's research suggesting that meditation can certainly help people decrease their anxiety. And what I tell my patients in terms of the anxiety and mindfulness and meditation here is that if you're meditating often, you are allowing your brain to have a slower speed. You're observing, you're creating that self-awareness, as you said, and that is a much more fertile ground for you to then challenge your brain. Right, you're building the muscle that allows you to slow it down a little bit. Okay, so that's interesting. I would have thought the mechanism by which meditation has a you know positive or mitigating uh, influence on anxiety would be the self awareness that you are you know sitting trying to focus on your breath, and then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And it's in those moments of waking up from distraction you see like what your life is all about. You see what your mind is doing, and you can then take even if it's just a minute daily-ish, you could then take that skill out into the world and you have a leg up when the cognitive distortion monster is at work. 
I think we're saying something pretty similar. I think for me, at least, that self-awareness allows for a slower engagement in the world in general, that it slows down my own engagement in the world, right? So so the viability of that self-awareness and the meditation that you're not as frantic if you engage in the world. And that's what I mean by it serves the ability, not only self-awareness, but your own um, experience of the world, I think, can be a calmer one as a side effect, not as the thing that you're striving for. It's interesting you say this because I often, when people ask me what are the benefits of meditation, I, I usually list three things. And this isn't necessarily always in the context of talking about anxiety. It's just talking about why would I you know, sit there with my eyes closed? The first thing I talk about is calm. And calm can be a little misleading as a when you talk about it as a benefit of meditation, because people sometimes go into meditation sessions, an individual session, expecting to be calm, which expectation is the most obnoxious party guest in the meditation party. And so it's this weird thing where if you expect something in meditation, it's almost guaranteed not to happen. So you're going into meditation not to feel any way. You're going into meditation to feel whatever you're feeling clearly so that your feelings no longer own you as much. And the net effect of that over time is what you just described, this overall increase in calm in terms of how you engage with the world. The second benefit I often talk about, I don't think is relevant in this context, but it is the ability to focus. And we see this on the brain scans of people who meditate, the part of the brain associated with attention regulation changes. And then the third is mindfulness or self-awareness, which again, we've been discussing, it seems like another way in which meditation can help in the face of anxiety, which is that you see it more quickly. Exactly. And, you know, I think the first time I heard about meditation, I was in graduate school and it was John Kabat-Zinn and I read books and I started thinking about it. And, and it was very clear to me that sitting didn't make me calm immediately, right? In fact, it's, it's a hell of a, a ride in the beginning, but I do think it slowed down my engagement in the world that allowed that calmness over time. I do think that the self-focus though helps here because the ability to focus your brain better, the more you're focused, especially if you can do one thing at a time, research shows us decreases anxiety, right? We're in a culture that we're told to multitask all the time, but we know that doing one thing at a time actually decreases anxiety. So I do think in many ways, that's why I call it the fertile ground, because it gives you the things that your brain needs when the anxiety comes up to then relate to it differently. That's such a great point. So I had said that maybe the second benefit I listed, focus might not be an anti-anxiety lever, but I take your point because so many of us are in multitasking mode, which makes us frenzied because our brains are not equipped to do many things at the same time, learning how to unitask, to pay attention to one thing at a time, just couldn't have that net effect of cooling down your engagement with the world. We collected a lot of voicemails for you, people calling in with questions, and I want to play one of them, and it actually kind of just tees off of your notion that anxiety isn't the problem per se, it's how we're relating to the anxiety. So let's take a listen, and then we'll chat about it on the other side. Hi, Dan. This is Laura. I love your podcast and thank you so much for this special on anxiety. My question has to do with stories we tell ourselves about anxiety. I struggle with general anxiety, but sometimes I wonder if I'm really anxious or just think, well, I should be anxious because I'm an anxious person. So I guess I'm anxious in this situation. So I'm wondering if you or your experts have any advice for kind of distinguishing between when anxiety is really happening or we just think, you know, we're experiencing it. Is it dropping into the body or, or is it is it something else? Thank you for everything you do. Bye-bye. That's such an interesting question because maybe there could be sort of pernicious impacts of giving somebody a an anxiety diagnosis because then they're walking around with the story of, oh yeah, I'm an anxious person. So of course, whatever's happening right now, I'm meeting it with anxiety. Does that seem like a danger to you? Well, it depends how you give that diagnosis. Certainly, the way you just described it is a huge danger. And Laura here is talking about generalized anxiety, which is worrying about worrying. That's the definition of generalized anxiety. So I, I think it, it's really about, I think Laura's right, the stories we tell ourselves. And in that, we really talk about our thoughts. We started by cognitive distortion, by understanding that once you feel something in your body and you're calling that anxiety, if you then go to feed that anxiety monster, 
well, you're certainly going to get more anxious. So if you start to feel and you go, oh, that's anxiety, I should be feeling anxious. Just that thought alone turns on that amygdala and goes, wait a minute, is something bad happening? And then the minute you think, well, maybe it is happening. And then now you're off the runs and your body's saying something bad is happening. I had this experience this morning, right about to work with a patient and had this very chaotic moment in the morning, a bunch of things happening. And I was walking into my office and my heart started to pound. And it happened that the patients I'm going to work with is having a lot of heart pounding. But when she has heart pounding, she goes, oh my God, something is bad. I'm anxious. Something's wrong. I was walking in and go, oh, this is super exciting. My heart is like beating fast because I'm really excited about the opportunities I have today. And just that thought changed my relationship immediately. And when I shared with her, she went, oh, I can see. So the heartbeat does not mean I'm having a heart attack. And I think that's what Laura is talking about here. A lot of my patients talk about the same thing. Like, can you have a different relationship with that anxiety? Making it something that can tell you what's going on instead of predicting something different that's bad necessarily. Right. So it's reporting, not prognosticating. It's telling you the body is preparing for something. It's not necessarily saying the world is about to end. That's a great way to put it, Dan. And, and, you know, the same heartbeat fast happens when we're anxious, but happens when we exercise. It happens when we are happy. And so it's really that story that changes what happens in our brain. Laura also mentioned this notion of dropping into the body. And I think it's worth talking about that for a second because this is a big part of the anxiety challenge that we're running on the app we really stress this in many of the meditations we do of dropping out of the swirling stories in the head and into your body. And again, this can get into kind of trite territory, listen to the body, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there's a reason why cliches become cliches because they're true. So what are your thoughts on this kind of listen to your body notion? I think it's extremely important to listen, observe, but not judge. Pay attention, bring curiosity. In fact, for the patient I just mentioned, what I encourage her to do is when her heart starts to beat, instead of adding the narrative, just say, oh, my heart is beating. And, and name it and pay attention and ride that wave without making it worse. And so that connection between what you're feeling and what you're saying and really noticing it is extremely important and core in cognitive behavior therapy. One of the centerpieces, if not the centerpiece of your approach to treating anxiety in your patients is the TEB cycle. And you talk about it in the Anxiety Challenge. And I, so I just want to play a little bit of that and then, and then we'll go into more depth on the other side. TEB stands for Thoughts, Emotions, and Behavior. It's a way for us to really understand what we are saying to ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, what we are feeling, our bodies and our hearts, and our behavior, what we do. It's really a way for us to sort of pause a little bit and understand what's happening in our brain before we add skills to be able to really break spinning cycles. So one thing that we do by exploring the tab cycle is we're pressing a pause button. And that pause button activates our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain. And by that, we're actually slowing down that limbic hijack. And now we can say, okay, what am I saying to myself? What, how does that make me feel? What does it make me do? And in just observing that, you're actually slowing down your brain. And then you're more equipped to add skills that will break that spinning cycle. Okay, so let's talk about how the TEB cycle would help us in a moment of anxiety. So I'm, I don't know, it's not hard to make me that anxious, but I get a elliptical text from my boss that says, call me. And then I start to spin. How would I use the TEB cycle in a moment like that? So the minute you get that text, what happens in terms of your body, your physiology, your emotions, what happens there? What do you feel? Chest tightens. For me, that's the big place where I experience anxiety. I imagine she's going to fire me. I call probably too fast before I take a breath. I just like kind of leap into action, call right away and am tight going into the conversation. And why do you call right away, Dan? Because I can't stand the uncertainty. That's it. So situation, right? Um, you get the stacks from your boss and just call me. Everybody listen, if you put yourself in that position, you can see immediately that you're going to get something. For me, I got my heart just to tighten a little bit. You got chest pain. And then immediately goes from that feeling to a specific thought. She's going to fire me. 
And now you're feeling pretty uncomfortable. And what do you do? Avoid. And you avoid your discomfort by calling right away. You can't stand this, right? Because it feels so unbearable. And so the tap cycle really allows us And it draws from cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's the basis of it, but it's thinking about skills, not therapy in such a way that in that moment, you're pausing your brain going, wait a minute, what's going on here? And just by even looking at that thought, she's going to fire me. If you were to use the technique that we talked about earlier, instead of becoming a detective, what data do you have, Dan, that she's going to fire you? The data of what a terrible job I do. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you've done that terrible job how many times? 21 years at ABC News. <laughs> and you got fired how many times again? Could always have it tomorrow. For sure. The worry brain will do that. And that's why thoughts are not facts, right? That's, that's why. It could happen tomorrow, right? The emotions are valid, but they're not reliable here. Because what you're telling me is you're getting anxious about what could happen in the future, Instead of in the moment, if you looked at the probability of getting fired tomorrow based on the past 21 years, what's the probability? Low. Do you see that? It's hard to even say close to zero because the brain's like, well, but I could hear your brain. I could see what your brain's <laughs> doing. It's so embarrassing. Well, it happens to all of us. And I love that you're sharing them because it happened to all of us. You know, I got an email yesterday at work and it was sort of a similar thing. And it was 11 o'clock at night and with my husband going, Okay, what do I do? Do I respond? It's 11, Luana. But, but really, and so we all do it, right? The question is, what is the utility of the tab cycle? Allowed me to pause last night, the same way would you with the text and go, do I have to call right away? And if you really do, you do. But it gives you that moment to then engage, perhaps not so pressed, engage perhaps not through the lenses of emotions, but through your thinking brain. And that's pretty powerful. Well, you're using this moment of getting an email in your case or a text in my imaginary case. And we're talking about the T in the TEV cycle, thoughts, emotion, behavior. How can we employ the E and the B in a moment like that? I'm going to slow us down and back up. I'm talking about taking a picture of your brain. That's how I see it. I'm very visual, right? And in the picture of one of the cases, I'm laying in bed. I see this. That's the situation. Laying in bed, there's this. The thought, he's mad at me, emotion, anxious, behavior, I have to reply. Right? That picture is the tab cycle, is the linking between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And that's what we usually don't do. We don't link them. We just, once you spit it, you don't even know if it's the T that's making you spin, if it's the E, or if it's the behavior. Right? Just pausing on that picture before you engage is actually quite advantageous before we get to any of the parts. I'm no mental health professional, but... Dr. Marquez, as I gently wag my finger at you, you probably shouldn't be checking your email at 11 o'clock at night. That's exactly right. I promised myself not to do it. But it's really hard. Like everybody else, when something happens, and yesterday was one of those days that things happen at work during the day, I was pretty anxious. I checked it to calm myself down. And like I tell my patients, it had the opposite effect. It made me more anxious. I think it's incredibly liberating to hear you say that you are not perfect. I am not perfect at all, and I'm far from it. I get anxious, I spin, I avoid. I just tend to catch it a little earlier because I like it. Okay, so you just brought up a word, avoid. We've been kind of talking about doing the opposite of, you know, like leaning in, spinning, reacting too fast. But another classic behavior, which would be the B part of uh, the TEB cycle, is to avoid which I have some familiarity with. But let me play a clip from the Anxiety Challenge where we talk about avoidance and then we'll dive into avoidance and actually why it's not a great strategy on the other side. Avoiding has a short-term benefit. The problem is it's teaching your brain the opposite of what we want to teach. It's teaching it the only way you can tolerate anxiety is by avoiding. And so long-term, it gets more and more difficult to get on the elevator and your anxiety starts to come before you even get there, which becomes nearly impossible then to approach. All right, you're talking about elevators there because I came to you with a big fear of mine, which is claustrophobia, and that can show up in an elevator that's that my brain doesn't like. And I will avoid to the point of back when I lived in New York City and now I live in the suburbs, but I would go see friends in New York City and um, I would walk 20 flights of stairs <laughs> if I didn't like the elevator. That is avoidance. But it felt better to me than, you know, risking a meltdown. Why was I wrong? 
Every time you did that, you walked up 21 flight stairs, it felt better momentarily, but it doesn't solve the problem. The problem is your interpretation that you're going to get in that elevator, you're going to have meltdown, to use your words, and then something bad is going to happen. And you never get to test the hypothesis by avoiding. You just get to basically learn that avoiding makes you feel better. But the only way to feel better is to continue avoiding, which is not what we want to teach our brain. We want to teach our brain to approach, not avoid. And really, in particular, that approaching and staying with it, that you can't stay anxious forever. Now, often patients say to me, but I'm going to explode. Luckily, none of my patients have ever exploded by just staying with the situation, right? It just hasn't happened. And so it really is teaching your brain that you can tolerate that amygdala hijack, that you can stay with it. And then what happens is the brain goes, okay, nothing bad's going to happen. And so I say this to everybody, this is the skill that I use the most. It's approach, not avoid. You feel anxious, figure out what you're avoiding and go for it just slowly and steady. But people say, they, they tell you, I'm worried I'm going to explode. But for me, there's a line, and I don't know if I, I mean, I, again, I am really not a mental health professional, but I, I don't know where the line between anxiety and panic is. And so I worry that I'm going to cross the line in an elevator over to panic where I start like trying to rip the doors open or like what, I don't know, really just, I can't sit there and tolerate it anymore. I'm acting out in ways that are, I'm not really in control of. Does, does that make any sense? It does. And I've heard that from many patients that have sclerosophobia or panic disorder for that matter, that their fear is that they're going to lose control and everybody's going to be there and they really can't handle it. Similar patients that um, are afraid of having a panic attack by driving, they're going to have this horrible car accident. And so that's something I hear often. The reality is the likelihood of that is small, but because people have an experience of having in the past, the brain register is the probability much higher. So you're making an overestimation on that probability, probably by having a panic attack in the past and now thinking like, well, if that happens, I'm going to get to panic. It takes a lot to get to panic. And so it really is that idea of allowing yourself to get in a situation that doesn't lead to panic immediately because you don't want to learn that that's where your brain goes so that the brain calms down enough to then get to more challenging situations. Okay, so this is key. What you're talking about is while you do not recommend avoidance, you also don't recommend willy-nilly running toward your fears because that's likely to have some catastrophic outcomes. You talk about comfortably uncomfortable, ratcheting up the level of discomfort slowly over time in the face of things you're scared of, which brings me to what I said at the beginning about how sometimes... Most of the time I've spent with you in person or, or virtually has been incredibly pleasant and fascinating, but sometimes you're very tough to be with because you will push people, because that's part of your job, to be uncomfortable in a regulated way. And that's what you did with me while we were shooting the Anxiety Challenge. You had me get in an elevator, which we made increasingly uncomfortable in a variety of ways. And it was genuinely uncomfortable. So talk about why this idea of being comfortably uncomfortable is so important in your approach? So comfortably uncomfortable really is based on the principles of what called exposure therapy, which is very different of being exposed to something. In your case, then you've been exposed to elevators most of your life. And still, every time you got to an elevator that felt uncomfortable, then you had this sort of panic sensation leading even to a panic attack, right? So if you're completely uncomfortable, yeah, the brain's on fight or flight, and it's like you're going to the emergency room because you think you're having a heart attack. You're learning not at that point, right? You're completely amygdala hijack in your survival mode. If you're completely comfortable, you're home playing with your kid, enjoying yourself, or in your case, going up 21 flights of stairs saying, you know, I'm, at least I'm getting exercise. It's good, right? That's, that's a comfortable place. But we're not learning. Comfortable and uncomfortable is really allowing yourself to find a sweet spot that you can approach the thing you're afraid of, in your case, the elevator, in such a way that you can stay with it long enough that your amygdala learns that nothing bad is really going to happen. And even if it does, imagine the worst case scenario, you do have a panic attack, you can actually handle it. And if you do this in a way that's regulated enough, then what happens is your brain pretty quickly habituates, gets used to it, and says, you know what, this is okay. And you're described beautifully. We just kept making the situation in the elevator a little more uncomfortable, but at no point in time, we just went from one to the other. We looped again and again, went up to third floor and down again to help your brain to learn, 
hmm, I can handle this. And, you know, over time, if you practice this well, patients really get better. We all get better. I did it with my height phobia. It works. Yeah, it was interesting. We had a couple days and, and I felt like I made real progress. But sometimes with some patients, I've heard you describe that it actually requires, you know, maybe like three, four five days or, uh, or repeated engagement over a longer period of time. But I, I, what I found in riding the elevator with you over and over and over again, and again, if anybody wants to see this, just take the challenge. You'll see some funny footage of this. I found that there were two things that were really helpful, maybe three. One was just the habituation over time was useful. The other was your injunctions to me were, I remember two of them. One was drop out of your head and into your body and just notice What's happening? Chest is getting tight. I got dizzy at a few points when it got particularly dicey, like the elevator stopped and I had no idea why it was stopping. So the one thing you told me to do was kind of just pay attention to what's happening in the body. And the second was to cross-examine my thoughts. How many times have you been stuck in an elevator and how many times have you died? So what's going to happen if you get stuck right now? What's the worst thing that's going to happen? And it was very useful to do these two things over and over again. And you do need both, right? Because it's not just habituating, it's also being able to think differently so that the next time you walk towards an elevator, you can actually have that more balanced view of the world, that you're not feeding that monster of anxiety and say, I can tolerate this, but you know, it could be bad. Sort of like what your brain did earlier. Well, I could get fired tomorrow. We want to get the brain to really have a more balanced view in real time so that it can tolerate that discomfort and overcome it. You told me when we were shooting this in Boston that you've taken people with severe claustrophobia all the way to being able to handle getting locked in the trunk of a car. I have, as you said, and I think um, appropriately so. I tend to be a little direct as a therapist. I want my patients to get better and we're going to do what it takes. And so this particular patient, we did a lot and eventually she was able to be locked in the trunk of the car. It really is about what is the worst case. For me, being locked in the trunk of the car means nothing, but for her, it felt the worst case. I think for you, we need to get you to an MRI machine or something like that. Yes, being locked in a trunk of a car would be a bad case, but I, I don't, I, I'm going to take that off the table because I'm hoping that's never even something that comes up. But an MRI, I will need to do at some point, despite my plans never to get sick. So I would like to be able to have that capacity. What about people listening to this who don't have a Luana Marquez in their lives? Or, you know, like, how, how, can we freelance on exposure therapy? Can we cure our own claustrophobia or public speaking or whatever phobias we have? Before I jump there, I want to circle back just for a second, because I think this is important for people to understand when I talk about putting somebody in the trunk of the car, right? I think what people need to understand is to overcome your fear completely. You sometimes have to get to the top of the thing that make you the most afraid. So I'm going to use my case here. Skydiving was the worst thing when I considered a fear of heights. That being said, no one is going to go skydiving every day in their life. And so it's really about getting to that top so that your brain can stop questioning it. But we certainly don't want people to have this idea that you have to get to that extreme to be able to overcome it. So then to answer your question about can we sort of freelance some of this, it depends where you are in terms of your relationship with anxiety, how long you've had it, and how much is impairing your life. I really believe that this skill, especially, you know, approach, not avoid, so comfortably uncomfortable, and really looking at thoughts as not facts, and being able to understand that emotions are valid, but not reliable. If you practice that early enough in your life, and you have enough flexibility, you certainly can do it by yourself. But if it starts to interfere a lot, then I think that's the time to sort of think about, I need to seek a professional here. Got it. I've said this a lot on, on the show, but I really do think we're in this, and we've been here for a while, at least in the United States, we're in this strange in-between uh, with the pandemic was uh, horrible, and but it's not over, but things seem to be getting better. That this is, uh, you know, if you're in other parts of the world, you're still in the full-on horrible stage, so I want to recognize that. But, but I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about anxiety at this stage in the pandemic? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? It's sort of getting better, but it's not fully better. So we still have a lot of uncertainty 
And when you put in the global context, then with variants and all of that, then we have even more uncertainty. So I'm hearing a lot of anticipatory anxiety from patients, colleagues, friends, sort of what, when is this going to end and when it does, what does it look like? So trying to get certainty for that uncertain brain. So there's a lot of that going on. And I think there's also a lot of fear of what does life look like after this? And we don't know because we're still in the middle of it. And that's something that I think is important for us to remind ourselves. Any data that we have predicting emotional long-term impacts of this our data after a major disaster. So if you look at September 11, we can anchor after September 11. So we're still in the middle of the pandemic. So some level of anxiety is normal. Some anticipation is normal. And I think it's really about allowing yourself to practice resilience building skills to help yourself weather what could be a tsunami of emotional challenges. We're going to do a whole episode on social anxiety, which I think is you know, not uncommon right now as in some parts of the world, we're starting to re-engage socially. Um, so we don't need to do too much on it right now because we, again, we're going to dedicate a whole episode to it. But what are you telling folks who are coming to you about, you know, here we are emerging from our involuntary cocoon and I'm worried about talking to other human beings. What are you saying to folks in this situation? So if you had social phobia before, social anxiety, then actually some of the isolation is a good form of avoidance. The problem is it made it worse, right? Because now you have to face people. So what I'm saying is, listen, having some level of anxiety socially and reinteracting makes sense. But if you had this before, this is the time to really seek treatment because you've been for 14 months or so in utter avoidance. And I hear this from patients all the time that, they shut off Zoom and they can you know, not show up for a meeting. They don't have a camera. When there's breakout rooms, they are turning off. And so if it really has been there for that long, this is the time to seek um, some treatment. And the good news is the treatment is quite effective and people can get much better. Much more of my conversation with Luana Marquez right after this. We'll be answering a lot of your voicemails. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Okay, we're back with Dr. Luana Marquez. We're going to dive into some of your voicemails. As I said, we got a bunch of voicemail questions. I want to tee up one that has to do with anxiety contagion. Here we go with that. Hi, this is Mary. And I think that I am on the average scale for anxiety. You know, I'm pretty calm in most situations, but definitely get anxious in others. But I can deal with it pretty uh, healthfully. Uh, but unfortunately, my husband, who I've been married to for 20-some years, gets very anxious during travel situations and it's a type of anxiety where I think he gets threatened when he doesn't feel in control in like you know fairly minor situations where like we're checking in luggage or 
you know, take it as, you know, we need to read books. Uh, situations that definitely provoke anxiety in many people, but he gets very anxious. And unfortunately, I just then get anxious myself because I observe him getting anxious and then I will get into it, whatever he's doing with the ticket agents. And I definitely fuel uh, this anxiety spiral. And I think that I'm learning how to step out of it. Of course, I haven't had much practice given travel restrictions. But now that I, I'm aware of it, I, I am a little better uh, able to step out of it. But I would really love to learn how to do it more quickly. And also, what can I do that would actually help diffuse the situation as opposed to uh, adding fuel to the fire. Thank you. Bye-bye. What say you? This is something that happens in every relationship, romantic or not, and in any situation when somebody's spinning. Whenever somebody starts to spin around us, it really means that their emotional brain is kidnapping their whole brain. And then what happens is we forget to regulate ourselves. And so we start to sort of think about what can I do and how do I, and, and she said it beautifully, like she starts to feed it by starting to spin herself. And so the first trick is this, we can't help somebody to manage any of their anxiety if our anxiety is not in check. And it's as simple as that. If you don't have enough of your brain available for you, you're just going to feed the other person's. And so really observing the tab cycle, slowing down, understanding. Two, in the case of this, um, if you can't have a conversation with that person, would be the ideal scenario. Her and her husband before any trip, sort of have a negotiation about, listen, this is what happens. I observe it. This is what I, I can't do it that way. So let's negotiate. So do it beforehand. And then the, the other question is like, so how, how do I help? I think helping in terms of anxiety is minimizing avoidance. So when, imagine this was my husband, he was spinning for luggage and stuff, get out of the way, let them deal with it. If you don't feed their cycle, then they tend to come down or they escalate. But as long as you don't feed it, it goes down. I have a three-year-old at home. The temper tantrum doesn't last forever, thankfully. Right now, if you interfere with it, it can get pretty loud. And so, you know, I think about this when I think about kids, the louder they get, the cooler you want to get and you want to slow it down and you want to bring your rational brain. And I teach this to youth workers on the street. They're working with kids highly dysregulated. Regulate yourself first to then regulate the other. I don't know if this is relevant, but something that I've noticed that was pointed out to me that I have a tendency to do, which is that somebody will come to me anxious and I will rush to fix it or put us into solution land instead of just signaling that I've heard them, validating what's going on for them, reflecting back to them that I'm listening, which in and of itself can have a cooling effect on the other person. What you're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, but what I hear you doing is what I call subtle avoidance. Somebody comes to you, they're anxious, and to not feel their anxiety, you want to solve it. And so you jump in and you try to solve it, which is avoiding your own discomfort most of the time for people because they're anxious. You're like, well, I don't want, I don't want my wife or somebody I love to be anxious. So you step in to really avoid your own discomfort. And all it does to the person is make them more anxious. Because the reality is most of us need to be heard first before we get solution. And often we are sharing so that we can think through it or be able to sort of just have somebody say, listen, yeah, it does suck. It feels awful. And so you're absolutely right that most of us get into fixing mode when we should listen first. And then I think in families, it's really important. What would be helpful right now? What are you actually asking me to do here? Right? Because sometimes we just don't even pay attention to what the person actually needs. I keep learning that lesson over and over. Let's do another voicemail. There's a caller who was curious about the link. I'm curious about this too. The link between anxiety and depression. Let's listen. Hi there. My name's Julie. I'm calling from Charleston, South Carolina. I often wonder with anxiety, what the relationship between anxiety and depression is. And that's something I've explored throughout my lifetime and, and constantly I'm a little bit conflicted. Does anxiety cause depression? Can an episode of anxiety cause lifelong depression or vice versa? Would love to hear you guys touch on that in some way during your series. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. These two conditions seem to be quite commonly 
comorbid, but I've never quite understood what, if any, causal link there might be. What, what's your understanding? So they're very comorbid. They happen together very often. In fact, the majority of patients that are treated for anxiety have some depression and vice versa. Very seldom we can talk about cause here. For example, I'm treating somebody currently that has social fears. And what first happened really is people are going to judge me negatively. And then she started to avoid situations that had social fears. And then she started to feel helpless and hopeless and sad. And then the depression kicked in. And so in that, it seems like the depression is a consequence of the social fears. But the majority of the time, you can't actually tell because the more anxious you feel, the worse are your thoughts. The more negative your thoughts get, the more depression people get in terms of feeling helpless and hopeless. And so it really is about which one is interfering more. But the question is a chicken and egg. It's hard to answer. So we don't really know why so many people who have one condition also have the other? Well, what we know is that the symptoms share variants, meaning that, for example, when you have an anxiety disorder, you may have sleep disturbance, and if you're depression, you may have sleep disturbance. So some of it is just the common denominator of how we diagnose and how faulty our diagnosis system is. Unless one clearly happens before the other, we can't really say if it's this or that. Usually, we treat both. And the good news is the tab skills that we've been talking about in this course are the skills that treat depression and anxiety. So if you're learning and listening to this course, they're thinking about your thoughts, right? And being a detective, the core of that is cognitive therapy, which was designed for depression and then adapted for anxiety. So to me, it feels like, is the question as relevant if the skills are the same? I'm not sure. Hmm. I've often thought about it as sensitivity. In other words, that if you're a sensitive person, you're, which, you know, is a raised in the, our culture as a red-blooded male is not something I relish saying about myself, but as a, as a sensitive person, you are more prone to getting sad by what's happening in the world or getting scared. Does that land? A little bit. The research here gets a little challenging because you're using sensitive in, I think, in two ways. One is just emotionally sensitive, right? Um, the other one is being told that you're sensitive and then learning that you're sensitive and then using as a filter that things come in and you're more sensitive, which is more likely to get you spinning. And so I do think there's a vulnerability. We talk about anxiety sensitivity, that some people are just more vulnerable if the anxiety hits to hit them in a different way, right? If I breathe out of a straw, and that's called interceptive exposure with a patient that has panic, for me, does nothing. If I spin on a chair, for somebody that has panic, their anxiety sensitivity is different than mine. So there's such a research that tells that we have different levels of anxiety sensitivity, but being sensitive to me feels like you're saying something to yourself that then filters your own view of the world. It's a story you're telling yourself, which can become a sort of a self-reinforcing prediction. Like because you're telling yourself the story, you then become more sensitive. Our brain filters information to minimize energy spent in the brain. So information comes in, and if you believe the sky is blue, you look at it, it's blue, check. If you looked and the sky looked black, your brain goes, wait a minute, what's going on? And that takes energy, right? This is the principle of cognitive dissonance. And so if your filter says, I'm sensitive, anytime somebody says something that makes you feel a certain way, you check, sensitive. You never ask yourself, wait a minute, Am I really feeling sensitive here? It goes back to our first color and the idea of, am I really anxious or am I telling myself I'm anxious? And so it's really important to think about clearing our filters and thinking about our current life, not the history and the stories we tell ourselves, because that tends to be distorted. Living with anxiety for a long time can have health impacts. And we got a couple calls about that. Let's play the first one. Hey, Dan. So my question or my comment is, I feel like I was born with anxiety. I kind of feel like my entire life I've been a worrier. I've had that clenching feeling in my stomach or my head or my chest when I was confronted with difficult situations or people. And, you know, fast forward to today, I'm 60 and I've developed some digestive and GI conditions, which I totally believe are partly due to um, a lifetime of feeling anxious. And while meditation helps and I just have 
physical conditions that no amount of common practices will reverse. So I just would like to hear from some of your expert guests the relationship between anxiety and real physical illness. As I said, I felt physical symptoms during uh, periods of anxiety, but now they've manifested into actual medical conditions. So I'd just like to hear more about that. What do we know about that? Research, I think, dating back to 2005 shows an association between individuals that are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and physical illness. So GI trouble, respiratory, bone problems, even controlling for other mental health conditions. In fact, I looked this up and, you know, between 50 to 90 percent of individuals who come for treatment for IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, also are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder or depression. And we're seeing new data um, pointing to a longitudinal effect that having an anxiety disorder can lead to GI trouble. And so what we're getting is a sense that long-standing anxiety certainly can affect our physical body. And it makes sense, right? You're in the heightened state and that has some impact on your body. What causes what? We don't have clear data here. This gut-brain connection is interesting to me. I... I um... We recently moved houses, which was extremely stressful. I mean, everybody knows that. And it so happens that I had to get an endoscopy where they send a little camera down into your belly in the middle of this move. And they were like, yeah, your stomach is a mess. And I was experiencing it as we were moving. My stomach was really upset. They were like, you are pre-ulcer level here. And it went away when the move subsided. But that, that was just really telling for me. It really is. And I hear this from patients and, and in fact, in different cultures, you know, in the Latino culture, which I'm part of, I grew up in Brazil, we know that people come in and say, I have stomach pain. They don't come in and say, I'm anxious or I have a headache, right? Um, many of my patients who are Latino say, listen, my stomach aches a lot. The doctor tells me there's nothing wrong, so it must be anxiety, but I don't really think it is. And so we have data really suggesting that. Um, and, and you're right that the body tells you, right, Dan? So it's an interesting idea of starting to think about, wait a minute, if my stomach is that hurting because I'm feeling anxious about this transition, what can I do? And I think about brain health. Then what can I do to calm down my brain so my stomach calms down a little bit? And, and we're talking about skills here that are designed to help your brain. So I think we're right on target. One last voicemail here also about the, the question of what anxiety does to our health. Let's listen to this one. Hello, Dan. I'm a regular listener to your podcast and also a subscriber to your app. And I definitely do have an interest in the topic of anxiety. Having um, a lot of experience in a negative way with anxiety associated with medical procedures and medical treatments, so many People sit and wait for results of tests like mammograms and colonoscopies and such, as well as uh, sit and wait for surgical procedures. All of these are anxiety-invoking, and I would welcome a program or part of a program devoted to this topic as to how to deal with or possibly successfully relieve the anxiety that comes with uh, medical matters. I thank you so much for listening, and I do hope that you're able to address this topic. I think it's quite widespread. Thank you. Bye-bye. I agree it's widespread. I remember my wife had breast cancer a few years ago, just waiting for test results or just pacing around the waiting room while she was having surgery. And it was hard for me, but it was way harder, of course, for her. What do you say to people who are waiting for test results for themselves or somebody they love? The first thing is that anxiety is normal, right? Well, there's research to actually compare people that are sitting there waiting for a test result versus people that know are going to get a month for now. When you are in that anticipatory anxiety, people have more difficulty, their brain more distract, and they have more trouble recalling information. So it's telling me that the brain is not taking information from short term to long term, which makes a lot of sense based on the conversation we're having, is that at middle hijack. So the first thing is you're going to have some anxiety. So expecting not to is certainly not going to help. 
Two is what to do with it in real time. And I think even the practice of meditation here can be helpful then. Really sort of, you know, cueing in, being able to be mindful, being attentive, or using the skills that we talked about. But I don't want people to expect that the anxiety wouldn't be there. It's, it's nerve-wracking when your loved one's hurting. And I think you need to sort of cool off your brain to be able to be there for them. In a moment like that, the cross-examining of the fears is tricky. They just did a biopsy of my wife, and I'm worried that she's going to, you know, die. So if I ask myself, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The answer is pretty legitimately, she's going to die. And so I worry that wouldn't help me with the anxiety to do the cross-examining that we talked about before in this context. It would not. Um, In fact, it's more likely to make you even more anxious because what you're talking about is uncertainty. So there's a different of like thoughts there linked to clear facts with uncertainty. We're talking about a medical diagnosis that's pending. And then the worst case scenario based on data now, not just in your brain, it could lead to death. And so in that moment, you know, what I teach people and I do is first is face reality. And facing reality does not mean you like reality. It's being able to sort of look at the data and sit with it for a little bit. It's not going to make you feel momentarily better, but you can say things like, my wife is getting the best care she possibly can. We're in the best hospital. In this case, we're doing everything we can. And so really talking to yourself in a way that minimizes that catastrophe, that's the worst, worst case scenario, which in this case could happen. And so that's one piece. The other one is really to try to not feed the brain. So in that case, our brain tends to want some certainty. And when you can't find it, it starts to see pictures of that worst case scenario. So even just dropping back. And when I've been in situations like this in my own life, I remember sitting in doctor's office waiting for um, test results and going, worst case, worst case, wait a minute. Let me just describe the room. And I literally started to describe the room to myself to activate my thinking brain, to be present there so that I wouldn't be feeding that worst case scenario, which in that case could have happened. That's why we have so many different skills though, Dan. I think that's the thing we're saying here. You know, being a detective may not work, but experiencing your emotions and riding the wave of emotions in that case really help. One last thing before we go here. You've written a book, which I mentioned at the top of the show, but I think you should mention it again. Uh, So let us know about your book and also what else you've got going on, where else we can learn more about you, aside, of course, from the Anxiety Challenge and subsequent course you're doing with 10% Happier. We can find out a lot about what I'm doing at my website, drluana.com. We have a great course called Mental Health for All, which is free for everybody. It's available in English, Spanish, and Portuguese subtitle. So if you're interested in learning more about the skills that we talked about, it's there. And stay tuned for my next book that I'm currently writing. The book that's already out there is called Almost Anxious. Almost Anxious. And it's based on the skills that we talked about on cognitive behavior therapy, helping you really build resilience. Luana, it's counterintuitively, given the nature of the subject, it's really very fun to do Anxiety Palooza with you. So thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Great job. It was fantastic, Dan. Thanks for having me. Big thanks again to Luana. Really appreciate her coming on and participating in the challenge. And a reminder, if you want to put everything we just talked about in this episode into practice in your daily life, in your mind, join us in the Taming Anxiety Challenge over in the 10% Happier app. The challenge starts Monday, June 21st. Download the app wherever you get your apps to join the challenge. This show, which is a massive undertaking, is made by some incredible people, including Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Plant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. As always, a huge shout out to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for the special episode I mentioned earlier. We're not doing a bonus this Friday. We're actually dropping a full-length interview. It's the third in our Taming Anxiety series. Uh, We're going to bring on a fantastic expert in social anxiety named Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. We'll see you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.